I want to be in the places where music and its story is, um, is in your face and challenges what you think you know. Welcome to the Banjo Studio Podcast from Banjo Studio, your source for the finest in North American-made banjos and Collins guitars and mandolins. Go to banjostudio.com on the web for an incredible selection of instruments and accessories. Hello. Today's podcast, recorded April 16th, 2020, is with Ketch Secor, frontman for the Old Crow Medicine Show. Ketch is very good at telling the stories uh, that the band has led him through, as well as a wide knowledge about folk music and folk traditions around this country and many others. First, I wanted to talk to you about banjo because I was hearing that banjo was the first thing that that really that you really took to. You said you really took to it, and so I'm wondering how uh, how you see the banjo now and how you see it in relation to all the other uh, acoustic instruments that you play and what your development's been on that instrument. What a privilege to get asked a question about a banjo here <laughs> on uh, week four or five or six or whatever it is of total lockdown. Yeah. I like, um, I like a good banjo question, but I like it even more in, uh, in, in self-quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for me, the, my relationship to the banjo is, is one that is always evolving because I get better at it. But um, it's something that uh, was, you, you know, you started by saying there's a lot of, um, a lot of forks in the road. And uh, the ways that your, your path ends up going um, can veer off at any sort of moment. And, you know, you could, you could be listening to Phil Oaks for age 14 to 18, and then suddenly you hear Neil Young, and then suddenly you're playing something totally different um, in, your, in your late teens and 20s. So um, for me, the, the banjo is, my, is the, one of the really first elemental diversions in my path. Is, is that I learned to play the banjo, which I learned when I was about 15. And, uh, you know, I don't know how things would have gone if I hadn't learned the banjo. It was definitely, it sent me into the old time music world and, and uh, records from the 1930s and 20s. And um, so the, I mean, I really owe a lot to the banjo because it, it, uh, it certainly has, it, it, it really opened a lot of doors for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find that it was well received? It always seems to me that the banjo is somewhat of a rejected instrument, but I guess you were in the middle part of the country there. I mean, up in the up in Appalachia and all of that, so maybe it was had a, you had a different viewpoint on it. Yeah, I found uh, where in the places that I traveled, and honestly, I I actually don't I can't think of a time when I saw the banjo be, um, um, you know, have the that undesired effect of repelling anybody. Uh huh. I, I find it to be very warm and engaging. It, it, it's, uh, I mean, first of all, it, it's shaped like a smiley face. <laughs> and then you put the smile on with your hand. <laughs> so, I mean, it just seems, you know, it's like a sunshine or a kid's drawing of, um, of a lion. You know, it just doesn't look like it's going to eat you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, versus what I think is the most repellent um, uh, uh, accoutrement in the, in popular music is the electric guitar. I mean, talk about want to run away from that. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, certainly I'm, all, I'm all for the, well, I just mean tonally. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it growls at you. It mm -hmm. says back off or it whines at you or it says feed me or it says take care of me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the banjo just never really made me feel like that at all. In fact, I, um, I think, um, I, don't, I don't know why I brought this up, but um, in, when I was a kid, when I was about 16, I remember taking my, um, my electric guitar and, uh, and um, using a ball-peen hammer and, uh, and a chisel to, to rip all the frets out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, um, I used a drill to put a fifth string into it really and converted my um my electric guitar into a five-string fretless electric banjo how did that work was it good oh i mean it sounded terrible but, <laughs> but there but it certainly uh, signifies my uh, allegiance yeah it definitely does that definitely that definitely says which way you'd want to put it and uh so you i hear that you were originally from new orleans or you lived here when you were very young and yeah, I moved to New Orleans in 1980. In 1980, okay. And I'm yeah. wondering how the music and culture of the city here uh, impacted you in any way. Yeah, it was definitely a really powerful thing. Uh, you know, I was really little, um, but my first memories of the of the world are in that uh, in that setting. And we lived there for three and a half years, and I left there when I was about six. Oh. It was that young, I see. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, I just remember scents and colors and sensory memory. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And then well, when I, I went, I didn't ever go back because, you know, we didn't live very close to Louisiana. I never went back until I was 18. And it was so amazing to go back then and, and have all of the sensory memory return. It uh huh. Was so incredibly familiar. And then I went to my old house and, um, and my return at 18 to New Orleans began, um, was the beginning of a whole lot of returning to New Orleans because I've just spent so much time there since, since uh, I was about 18. Uh, let's see. The other thing that you talk about, and I thought this was, this would be an interesting thing to bring up is, um, uh, you, You've spoken somewhat negatively of the of the commercialization and the things that are going on in country music, and I'm wondering how you balance the, the what goes on with your success level, playing um, uh, very acoustic and very uh, with a, with a different aesthetic than that, and how you maintain a balance and understanding for being successful and getting the music out there, but not uh, being drawn into, I guess, to the this sort of uh, falsity aesthetics of commercial music uh i i think if if anybody asked old crow to enter the false aesthetics of commercial music we would love to because because you know you can really make bank in that space uh -huh. oh so you just haven't been asked that nobody ever asked me to make a hit record <laughs> so it's all accidental okay then i misunderstood some of your answers in previous interviews but then that, that makes sense okay interesting so yeah no that. i i would love for somebody to, to say some producer some record company to, to say hey we we really want to make a commercial country record with you what uh -huh. would that look like because i would love to answer that question I, I think it would look a lot like alabama the band oh uh -huh. uh, <laughs> like if we were to go pop country old crow would sound a lot like that uh-huh uh, 
And to me, I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing because I love Alabama, the band. Uh-huh. And uh, I just think they're fabulous. Uh, in fact, we were on hand for the, uh, we were asked to uh, present for the, um, for Jerry Bradley, who produced so many of their records and really helped them craft that sound um, in the mid-1980s, who was just inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame this past fall. Uh-huh. It, it was great that they would ask us to do that and that we would get to be the band most likely to sing acoustic versions of Alabama music, which sound really great. Uh-huh. But yeah, like I say, I mean, I, I'm, I'm cool with our precarious perch here um, on the, you know, the hanging tree outside of country music. We look good up there and we just sort of hang out and, and cast occasional judgment and then just sort of fly off and, and then <laughs> we can return. It's really an amazing story that Nashville would make a place for a, for a band of buskers like us, I mean, we just totally don't belong and we never did. And, and yet we didn't have to compromise terribly. We just had to get kind of business savvy uh, in order to, to be in this space. And the, the fact is, you know, country music, which is so obsessed with its own reflection in Time's Mirror, mm-hmm. I can't help but look back and see bands that look just like us. <laughs> Somewhere past the the hero worship of Johnny Cash and the the idolization of Hank Williams lies this really strange history that you just is it's undeniable, but it's not all, but it's often overlooked. Uh, and that's the wily twenties and thirties in in the infancy of country, the hillbilly era, uh-huh. and uh, and we just we just represent that really well now um, in in the twenty first century. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And let's talk about a little bit about this, because I, I have heard you mention this in, 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 in other things. Um, I know, I hope you'll excuse me about this. I, I did check into things, so I try not to be redundant. So I try to capture, at least make an effort to get to some things that you haven't, that aren't, that you're not asked all the time, maybe, or that I, that I haven't seen. So I hope you'll forgive this. But uh, how did you, you said that you weren't deserving of playing the kinds of places that you ended up in the Ryman and places like that and the Grand Ole Opry, Opry relative to what you, what your state was as a band. But obviously you've come a long way. What was the process of work that went into getting you to where you felt that it was fine for you to be in that, in that environment? Uh, um, I mean, my simple question would, my simple answer would be maybe like somewhere between sobriety and just sort of keeping it together. Mm-hmm. W- once we didn't show up like, fall down wasted once we got so that we could you know not make a scene or like rip up stuff or like tear up plumbing i mean you know we were pretty um we were pretty wild band of heathens material uh-huh. um, in the beginning and that's why I, I don't remember the where i said i didn't feel that we belonged in in uh those spaces but you know, we didn't, I mean, we hardly belonged anywhere except on the street corner. That's really where we uh-huh. did our best work. That's where we looked the part. Uh-huh. Our, our job, the thing that we were selling, just fit right in on a curve. Uh-huh. Uh, so w- when we got to New Orleans and started busking in New Orleans, I mean, we fit right in. We right. were, because we had had, we had already busked in the, I mean, I'd already bust in the subways in New York and in the T in Boston and Oak Crow had busked all the way across Canada um, in, you know, Winnipeg and Ottawa and Portland, um, Seattle and all these different places. So 
it seemed like in the when we first got to Nashville, we, we were pretty dirty when we first got to Nashville. You know, we were all 19 years old and, um, you know, pretty unwashed and then definitely not trying to make it. In fact, sort of sneering at the idea of it. Like a lot of our influence coming up as a band was was punk rock and not so much punk rock in the sonic sense. Although to me, you know, when I first learned the banjo, it was the ultimate punk rock instrument. Uh -huh. um, and then the other thing that, that added to the mix was that we were like, we were fiercely anti-bluegrass when we were kids. Uh -huh. um, and I, it's hard to say we here because I just know I can only speak for me, even though I'm in a collective. Um, for me, I was super anti-bluegrass. So I had this thing to rally against that, you know, you know that, that, that phenomenon, which is, which is everybody that's about 19 or 20 years old wants to be judged by what they're not instead of by what they are. Right. So uh, they, right, right. So, you know, like I always heard this phrase, anything but country. Uh -huh. I mean, where I grew up, everybody liked anything but country. And the people that like country liked anything but rap. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I thought they both kind of sucked. I like punk rock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I learned to play um, old time music, I could see that that old time music skirted right down the middle. Mm -hmm. I didn't like rap, but I like Public Enemy. I didn't like bluegrass, but I like Charlie Poole. Uh -huh. You know, you just sort of find these little, like you find your ground and, and then you start working it. So what was it, do you think then the thing that was turning you off was the virtuosity feature? Just the, you know, the, was that, I mean, because that seems like the feature that, that is different there to me, you know, which is, and also songs that are really, that are really from the heart, which is a very different kind of thing, I think, than shows up in bluegrass, although a lot of them are traditional. I don't want to make past judgment on kind of music. I'm looking for what you saw that you didn't like in bluegrass. Uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, primarily what I didn't like was um, was cultural. The old time scene in the early and mid 90s and late 90s when I in the 90s, the old time scene where <laughs> I was coming up in North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, but primarily in North Carolina, mm -hmm. it was pretty hippie. Mm -hmm. And so it would be but but hippie in a different way than what I saw um, at fish shows. Mm -hmm. It was it was hippie with like a punk rock attitude. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the a lot of the a lot there was a definitely a place for women to excel and for girls. And mm -hmm. a lot of those girls and women were tattooed. Uh -huh. um, it was a place where lots of dudes had lots of funny facial hair and drove VWs, but you know had like fiddle stickers on the back, and were super you know um, into changing the world through holding tightly onto old time music. There was also um, a celebration of the African-American heritage of the, of the music, which I felt that bluegrass uh, culturally was not capable of. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it more had to do, it wasn't so much that I thought bluegrass was super lame, I didn't. It's just that the people that played bluegrass weren't the people that I could stay up all night long with. <laughs> yes, they weren't the people you wanted to hang with, got it. Um, and, uh, actually let's pause there because I want to talk about the African American influence in general on, uh, on everything, uh, on, on your, on what you do and, and the music that you make both politically and also in its structure. Uh, cause I think that's important feature to keep there since you brought it up. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, you want to jump into that? Yes, I'd like to jump in. Uh, yeah, so um, I think that um, I think that being here in a in the country music space in 2020, um, it's there's never been a better time to do the kind of reckoning that is happening institutionally around the country. You know, it's just like a couple years ago when Princeton University thought about changing the name of um, of a of a hall named for President Wilson because of President Wilson's being a bigot, mm -hmm. um, or um, or just like uh, Sonny, um, a couple years back um, started pulling out over uh, Confederate monuments in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a kind of reckoning that has that has to take place in in a society that has built you know white supremacy kind of institutions and has spread a, a, a doctrine of white supremacy across institutions mm -hmm. um, from the federal government to colleges to you know you name it uh, mm -hmm. anyway because that because that has happened everybody every system every organization has to take a look at it the ymca busing um, rivers and canals and barges and every everybody, the restaurant industry, everybody's got to take a look at how how they've how they have treated persons of color and the ways that they have um, celebrated or not celebrated, all those sorts of things. They all have to take place. Country music is one of those places where the reckoning is on, uh -huh. uh, and it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so I I'm really interested um, as a somewhere between performer and like advocate historian um type of dude i'm really interested in having something to say about it and i've, I've really enjoyed the ways in which i along with black banjo players and fiddlers and songwriters producers um can say hey it's time that nashville takes a good look in the mirror and um the ways that i've contributed more specifically to it um, probably my biggest contribution to the conversation about country music's reckoning with its racist past mm -hmm. is through the song Wagon Wheel. Yes. You know, it's a super popular song. Now, um, an interesting fact came out a couple of, maybe about a month before the quarantine. And I was in touch with Darius, my friend Darius Rucker, about this. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, the, the RIAA, which you probably know better what that stands for, but the folks that give out the Grammys, or maybe they don't give out the Grammys, they certify platinum records. Mm -hmm. The RIAA came up with a new fact that there were five country music songs that had, um, that had become the top um, in the past 60 years of their, um, you know, checking, this, checking the, these records. And so the top five songs are, are all songs that, that all are part of that country music that we talked about earlier in our conversation about, um, you know, what's the mainstream sound. So uh -huh. I put these country, I mean, none of them are, I fall to pieces. There's yeah. nothing like that. There's no, hey, good looking. There's no, I saw the light or there's no Wabash Cannibal or Mama Tried or anything that you and I both think ought to be uh -huh. in the top five. Uh-huh. But according to RIAA, whatever that is, or RAAI, anyhow, they seem to be some kind of authority on this. And they say that the top five songs are some by Taylor Swift that I think is lousy, some by Lady Alabama, which is a whole lot worse, um, some I can't remember, and then two songs by black artists. 
one is 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 um old town road uh-huh. and the other one is wagon wheel uh-huh. so two out of five are by black performers but huh. there's one out of the five and you know we could spend all day trying to figure out is old town road country or not mm-hmm. but i i mean anybody who wants to have that argument i'll say is that song by taylor swift about like loving your teenage boyfriend but not being held down by him is that any more country than the song by the gay black rapper from atlanta uh-huh. I don't know. I'll let that, the, we can let the folks, the musicologists figure that out. But I do know that there's one song on the list that is a true country music song. It's undeniable because mm-hmm. it's a folk song. And that's this song, Rock Me Mama Like a Wagon Wheel. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's, it's folk heritage goes, stems from, it's a long story and I don't need to tell the whole thing, but it's rooted in black tradition. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, that's the secret of country music, rooted mm-hmm. in black tradition. Where did the banjo come from? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, yes. And, uh, that's, that's a great, great and interesting answer. And, and, uh, it go, uh, continuing from there, you know, since you started out with 60s folk, uh, stuff, I mean, you've mentioned Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan and probably Dave Van Ronkel. I don't remember people like this from, from when you were younger. Um, how did you, how do you, I mean, obviously they were very, open about the black influence in their music at that time and so that you know and, and that and that's something what i want to know is, is besides that how do you feel or see that that is different than what you would call old time or traditional what distinguishes that particular 60s folk thing from the other distinction from the other from the distinct other categories sure well the um the Folk, the, the traditions that I'm, there's the folk music of the mid-century through the lens of the folk revival, which was, um, which was really the sound, one of the soundtracks of the civil rights movement. I mean, you could also say that James Brown is one of the s- soundtracks of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there was numerous kinds of folk music that was popular and helped popularize the messages of the, of the civil rights movement in the 60s and in the late 1950s. Um, and that was a, you know, because of that progressive politics around that, that was definitely a place for rabble rousers and, and lefties and all those folks that might have already been awoke to the idea that black folk were equal to white folk and all the, all the rest. Um, my, my interest in old time music comes from a, from a culture in which, um, you know, uh, that, that couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is sort of the needle in the in the haystack approach to trying to find evidence of country music recorded in the 20s and the 30s by black artists. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that you do is you you go looking for fiddle players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're when you're interested in you know like there's and and one of the one of the ways to know that you're going to find them is by starting in the modern era. So who are the black fiddle players of today? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I know so many of them, and because so many of them are, frankly, from the Pelican State, which is the place I know, <laughs> I didn't have to look far to know that in my search that I was going to turn stuff up. Because uh-huh. if they're black fiddle players now, you can bet there were a lot more black fiddlers then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's tough because now you got to find, you don't have a festival to go to, um, you, you got you got to do this, um, you know, with your collection of Yazoo records or um, with your with your books by, um, you know, Paul Oliver or 
um, with your books by um, Alan Lomax or, um, you know, um, and so finding the fiddlers of the 20s and the 30s who represent the black tradition uh, became something of, um, you know, a sirenic call to me. I was really into it and, um, and then particularly the way it related to my one relationship with Joe Thompson, this great black fiddler from North Carolina, um, just helped to have a kind of um, way of focusing that lens through actually getting to, you know, visit with and be a friend of somebody who, who embodied black fiddle playing traditions in country. That's this wonderful guy. And if you, if your listeners ever get an opportunity to, to, to um, listen to his music, he made records with his brother Odell. So this is a duo called Joe and Odell Thompson. who were from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, that is really great. I had, let's see, just two more questions. Uh, and uh, one I think is more important. So I'm just going to shoot with that first, uh, which is, Considering that you've come this far and this is all these are all the directions that you've looked into, what are you looking forward to doing? And and also I'll throw in there, what is the impact of the current situation on what you're thinking about in music? Because you write a lot of things that are about circumstances. I mean, there was a whole thing about uh, the record that had a lot about um, the problems of drugs and mid-country and stuff like that, uh, you know breaking down like that and so i'm wondering whether you have material that you're thinking of in relation to that and also if not but what are you thinking about what is what do you see in the future for yourself or how would you like to develop well thanks for that question thanks thank you i i think that uh right now i'm um i'm looking a lot at the music of equatorial africa and uh learning a lot about um this guy named um Hugh Tracy, who was sort of like the Alan Lomax or John Lomax of, of um, Equatorial Africa during the 1940s and 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been listening to a lot of music that was recorded by him um, in these really remote recording situations. He had this crazy elaborate recording apparatus rigged up to an old Packard that he was, you know, basically had to build bridges for to cross the Congo River and the Zambezi and other spots as he traveled in in the 1940s in places that still don't have roads today. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a really that's been a really interesting program of uh, scholarship and you know I just get fired up about stuff you know uh -huh. I've um, I learned to play Tejano music particularly like the conjunto kind of Tex-Mex polka sounds of San Antonio um, a couple of years ago and spent a lot of time going down to San Antonio and um, and so I guess you know and I'm also really interested in um, in this um, in the sounds of um, um, Polynesian um, uh, choirs you know oh. they a lot of um, Anglican style hymns which are really familiar structures to me um, and I think really beautiful but I love to hear them in different ways with different languages um, there's some some records that were made in the 1960s that you can hear on Nonesuch uh -huh. that celebrate um, the, the 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 singers of the, um, you know Samoa and Solomon Islands and Fiji and Tuva and Tonga. Uh, so I, I'm really into that. That's pretty. That would, would 
And I guess when I, when I say I really like the music of the South Pacific and the music of Equatorial Africa, um, I, I just find that I'm still at the old, I'm still at the Fiddler's Convention and I'm following my ears. And my ears are always taking me to the places that have the most kind of um, common denominator and like rub and cross section and um, the, the places where the collision is happening, happening, the place where like the, you know, I want to go where the, where the tattooed 17 year old fiddle playing girls are. That's the place I wanted to be when I was 20. Um, and, and I mean, in the, you know, poetic sense, that's where I want to be now. I want to be the, in the places where music and its story is, um, is in your face and challenges what you think you know. And uh -huh. I find those traditions exist. Um, in a lot of world sounds. I don't hear those traditions on the radio a lot, but that's okay. I don't listen to the radio a whole lot. Uh -huh. uh, I listen to a lot of old scratchy records and, and then try and see the world, uh, uh, I try and imagine what the whole elephant feels like from just one little piece of a toenail. Uh-huh. And uh, so the last question, that's wonderful answer, thank you. And uh, last question I would ask is, is um, is really related to what you're talking about with stories. You're very adept, it seems like, both at writing stories and at translating your experiences as a story in a very in a very connected fashion. And there's a certain talent there. The way that that's delivered vocally, I think, is a place where there's a very interesting clash of influences that goes on in your music. And as much as I haven't heard a, a band from that that has your sort of instrumentation and your sort of feel with that kind of vocal delivery and i think it it seems to make people listen and I, there's a, there's another there's another feature of it which is that your voices actually sound really good together but don't sound like one they're identifiable as different voices in there i don't recall many bands other than maybe the band where that's like really a feature <laughs> and so i wanted to hear you talk maybe a little bit about how you approach the story thing and putting that in song and the vocal quality. Okay, well, thanks for that and all your other wonderful questions today. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm tickled that you want to know the answer to that. I've uh, it's um, it also happens to be the day that um, is the birthday of Charlie Chaplin. Oh, fantastic! And so mile. Uh, so I've got the Gold Rush playing in the next room while Perfect. my children eat barbecue sandwiches. Uh -huh. And um, here we are in the sixth week of quarantine, and just I just want to say once again, I'm honored that you want to that you want to talk about my process and my voice and how I made a cool band because because uh -huh. man, I mean I'm tripping over so much laundry and <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. It's yeah, a crazy, crazy scene. <laughs> so uh, thanks. I mean, it's just really nice to talk about something other than when I'm going to get these dishes done. <laughs> um, I uh, I always wanted to um, to have a band that had a whole bunch of distinct voices in it. That always sounded right to me. Uh, I guess I I figured that out from groups like the band, or like the you know various sounds that the birds had with other singers uh -huh. and sort of like the. I was more interested in scenes. Like I really wanted to be in a cool scene more than I ever wanted to be in a cool band, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but then when I, when I found the Old Crows, we just didn't play well with the other bands in the scene. They were either 
the virtuosity of bluegrass or they were like hippy dippy kind of jam bands and we just wanted to play our old time music so we just didn't find a lot of we didn't make a lot of friends and even coming to nashville way back when and so um we're sort of like this you know flower pot that was put not under the light bulb with all the other flower pots uh-huh. but instead we found this weird kind of natural light that was barely enough to keep us alive and then we figured out how to make our own light which was which was you know uh, super idiosyncratic and and then our plant grew all crazy um i think that uh, being in a band like ours is reflective of groups like you mentioned the band but also um, the grateful dead who was another kind of split singer kind of vocal group mm-hmm. um i always liked to be a storyteller and um you know pete seeger had a profound influence on me listening to his records like abby yo-yo and sam the whaler mm-hmm. um you know songs that were musical but also were oratory in their nature and also i think burl ives made me feel this way too uh-huh. um i never really thought i had a great voice uh and um when i was a kid i really wanted to join the vienna boys choir i thought that would be the ultimate um mm-hmm. that uh singing you know singing in that style would be the thing that would make me the happiest mm-hmm. but I, but i realized you know i just never had the kind of personality in my voice so i found other singers and none of them were were elvis either um but uh but together we had personality and now here i've been in a band for going on 22 years now and i'm the last guy left in the band from when the bus not the bus the volvo station wagon left for the canadian border in the late uh-huh. 90s uh-huh. i'm the last dude that was that can remember picking up those that carton of cigarettes on the indian reservation uh-huh. and uh, so the blend has had to adapt considerably since we first got started because we're still a band with many voices and those voices keep changing and now my voice is the only one that's still in it after all these years and that's one of the challenges that we face um you know in being a band and not not a solo guy it's not my band mm-hmm. i mean i might be the sort of lead singer of it and i might be the leader of the band but i'm not the only voice in it and it's important that it stay that way so you know finding another voices finding that blend i i think i'm going to probably spend the rest of of the band's career trying to capture anything even close to the sound of our voices critter and willy and catch that first three records that blend that's a, that was a money blend that was as close to csn as we're ever going to get uh-huh. but who knows i mean it could it could get there again and or we could the three of us could start singing together again or hell david crosby still around <laughs> that's right he is <laughs> Yeah, it's like, almost cut my hair today. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not happening while the quarantine's going on. So, yeah. I cut mine last night, man, and it was such a good choice. My daughter helped me with it, and then she shaved me. And I got to tell you a Louisiana story, and then I'm going to let you go, or yeah. you're going to yeah, let me go. Um, uh, one of the, you know, I, I've had the really distinct blessing, and because I, I know it's a blessing because it comes from a spiritual realm. It's nothing of my own choosing. It's nothing that you're going to get in your inbox one day without a whole lot of divinity and this kind of smoke that surrounds it. I got to be friends with the, my favorite fiddle player in on earth, 
the great, the one and only Doug Kershaw. Oh yeah. And Doug's living out in Denver now. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's been out there for 20 years and he loves it out there. And he comes to Louisiana every year. He started coming to Nashville. He started coming to, to get together with Old Crow and we were singing and doing concerts together. Um, but I, I was out, we, we had him out when we first met, we had him out to Red Rocks and he was really nervous, you know, and uh -huh. he hadn't been in front of a big crowd like that before. And of course he brought his son with him, Zachary. And Zachary's about my age, maybe a little older. And, and Doug is 80 something. Um, and before the show went on at Red Rocks, which is sold out, like there's like 11,000 people and they don't even know they're gonna get Doug. Um, Right ahead of the show, I come down to check on Doug because, you know, every time I have older musicians out, I'm always the guy that's like, you know, if they drink, I'm bringing them scotch. If they don't drink, I'm bringing them milk or coffee or whatever. I'm like the host guy. Uh -huh. um, anyway, I come back and I hear this buzzing sound and I see that his son is giving him a haircut before the gig. And it was the most beautiful scene, you know, wow. um, he's, he's shirtless down to the and, and naked to his waist um you know just sort of letting it all hang out 80 years old he's got all of his beautiful shirts that he's brought with him all lined up his son is is doing his back and getting the edging right on his on his sideburns um and then he and his son pick out a shirt together and then zachary brought combs his hair out and it's just this wonderful scene of caretaking and and also the love of kinship uh -huh. and I feel that so much in Louisiana music I feel the father and his son the mother and son the, the, the father and a daughter mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm just I'm, I'm you should definitely get your hair cut if you got a kid let your kid cut it <laughs>